Blog Talk Radio. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys, or you can check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And I'm on Instagram, lots of great pictures of our guests at Saturdays with Joy Keys. Also, if you have any suggestions or comments or you just want to tell me some stuff, you can reach me at Saturdays with Joy Keys at Hotmail.com. I want to thank you guys for your support. I know I was on a bit of a hiatus. I thank you for listening and downloading the show while I was out of the you know, realm, so to speak. But I'm back now, and I hope you enjoy today's show. I have a wonderful author, professor, mom, traveler, uh, scholar, so on and so forth. Her name is Emily Bernard. She holds a BA and PhD in American Studies from Yale University. Her work has appeared in The American Scholar, The Boston Globe Magazine, Creative Nonfiction, and many other places. Her essays have been reprinted in Best American Essays, Best African American Essays, and Best of Creative Nonfiction. Her first book, Remember Me to Harlem, The Letters of Langston Hughes and Carl Van Vechten, was a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. She is a contributing editor to The American Scholar, and Emily is currently the Julian Lindsay Green and Gold Professor of English at the University of Vermont. Welcome, welcome. Hi, Joy. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you very much for coming in. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I know you were busy running around planning to catch an airplane. Not, I know we're stuck. We're stuck in the house. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. So what about, about that? What are you doing while you're stuck in yeah. the house? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm doing a lot of looking out the window. Um, and, you know, like everybody else, it's just amazing having new experiences, you know. I mean, some of them terrifying, just the not knowing. Not knowing, none of us knows that's the hardest part, I think, of all of this. And probably accounts for some of the um, ignorant rage that sort of we see happening around the country. So it's terrifying not to know. Um, mm-hmm. But I live mm-hmm. in a state with more cows and people. So it's uh, social distancing is sort of the way of the way we live here. Right. What about your children? I mean, you know, most kids are, want to get out and do things with their friends and hang out and mom, I'll see you later. I'll call back. You know, <laughs> how you, what's going on with that? It's tough. Um, it's very tough. It was hard for my kids the first few weeks. You know, they just needed to get oriented. You know, they, they were mm-hmm. it was really hard. They, you know, the loss of their entire social world. Um, and, you know, so it's about, about now, it's going to be tough over the summer. I'm sort of gearing up for that, for that challenge because, you know, we wait a long time in Vermont for the weather to turn and to get, you know, 60-degree days and sunshine, consistent sunshine. So it's going to create new problems. But every time I look too far ahead in the future, I get confused. 
So I just try to keep it one day at a time. But you know, my daughters are teenagers. It's really strange that they're growing up anyway. You know, our children are growing up anyway, like hothouse flowers. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting, though. My daughters have always, uh, you know, been in an epic battle that I think is common for tw- twins. But it stopped. It's like it turned out that fighting was not essential, you know. <laughs> and that was a, uh, actually worried me more than anything, how, how, how kind they were being to each other for, for a few weeks. Um, but we're back to, back to a lot of squabbling now. <laughs> yes, teenage years are very difficult um, uh, for the tr- children as well as the parents. And I remember I wanted to hang my daughter out the window by her toes. I was just like, oh, my God, an alien, an alien invaded her. What happened to the little girl that used to, like, wear everything I told her to wear and, you know, all these things. It, it just was like oh, yeah. she's not there anymore. But um, now she's older. You know, she has her own life. Um, and I, uh, I feel for her, she's in Boston, you know, and mm-hmm. I feel for her, she's mm-hmm. the warm weather. They, they, they get it later than I do down here in Philadelphia. And, um, yeah. it's going to be hard for, you know, people of that age, you know, used to go to get a drink after work, you know, come over to my house, mm-hmm. we're going to play some games. Uh, I, I don't know. We're going to have to just be present right now in the moment. I think the mindfulness yeah. is important right now, you know? So I think you're absolutely right. I and mean, it's just, it, it, there's, there's so many unknowns. I and mean, we do have, you know, and all the historical pre- precedents tell us we've got to be careful and that we're just at the beginning. And it's hard for us to get our minds around it. I think in 2020, a pandemic that happened 100 years ago, that is our teacher now, you know, and all of that behavior, mm. um, it, was, it happened 100 years ago. We didn't invent anything, right? We didn't invent, this generation did not present, invent the COVID, the virus, and it did not resent, excuse me, invent the various reactions to it. We have to write some history and you're right, one day at a time. Yes, yes. Well let's talk about your book. This is a, a great book with a lot of different essays and it's talking about black is the body. I mean the t- title is very simple, straightforward. Uh one of the first things is like you got stabbed. Now and this mm-hmm. is the crazy Indeed. part, audience. She got stabbed by a white guy. She's black, but she says it wasn't because she was black. Explain that to the audience. I got stabbed very simply because the man who stabbed me was a paranoid schizophrenic who had been deinstitutionalized too early. And, you know, um, the whole phenomenon of like suicide by cop. He was, mm-hmm. he, I mean, his, 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 he was, his words as he was being pursued by police were, you know, please, please kill me. Um, I think if I had died, Excuse me. I think if anybody had died, and if I had died, of course, you know, the response of my family, the people who loved me would have been, um, you know, very different. But um, right. we all survived this. And it, it's fundamental, fundamentally shaped the way I view the experience. Um, I was able to, you know, move on and have a life. I don't have lingering rage toward this person. As I say in my essay, I looked in his eyes and there was nobody there, you know. Um, I can only, I, I often imagine when I hear accounts of, you know, personal violence between people who, for whom there had been love, I wonder what that must be like. Because I looked in the eyes of someone, there was no one present. And that was terrifying mm-hmm. in its own way. But in a strange way, you know, it wasn't personal. Um, he was afraid and living in a brain that was populated by forces outside of his control. He, right. he got on his medication, he, you know, apologized to all of us. There are people who among 
the cohort of people who were sad, they're people who carry a lot of rage toward him. And, you know, I understand, you know, we all can't help who we are. But I think for me, that experience just, um, it made me mindful and aware of the world in a different way. It made me become aware of inequities around mental health treatments. I mean, it's just, it's just what, what captured my imagination in this, um, the fact that this was this lonely soul who was right. white. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he was, so the encounter, though, of course, gets read a lot at, by people as, as, a, as a racist encounter. And, in fact, I, gave a, I was on the road with my book, and a white woman, um, a kind of a, a famous feminist theorist, said, you know, I know what you say in the book, but I, I think it was about race. You know, and I thought, okay. And I said, you know, do you. You know, the story belongs right, to you now. Right. I, I was there, and I think I can testify, you know, to this experience. But it really, it, you know, stories, we, we, are, we play a role even in our own life stories, and then they, they belong to the world and other people in a different way. Um, so it's I had to like a form of art. Of I hate experience. to say that. I mean, it was a mm-hmm. violent experience. But, you know, it's an interpretation. Yeah. Me, personally, when I first read it at the beginning, as, the, as I was reading the sentences, literally like sentence by sentence, because you were like, it's not because I'm black. Then I was like, mm. but then when I read mm-hmm. it, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't think that either. Because, like, what, so many other people got stabbed. But my question is, why did you go back into the cafe? Oh, my God. I felt <laughs> wow. like I was reading a horror novel. And, oh, no, watching the, the horror movie. And, like, the person's like, what's that noise? John, can you go check out? I'm like, no, John, don't go check it. Like, you know. <laughs> oh, my God, I was that person, wasn't I? Yes, you were. No, I'll never be able to. I was that person. I am very stubborn. I'm my father's daughter, and what I say goes. And I think again that denial. I mean, that's why I say even even some of the craziness we see happening, getting played out right now in our nation, where people are resisting stay-at-home orders that are designed to to help them live. I can't pretend mm-hmm. I don't understand a piece of that because there's something right. in my denial is real. There's something in my brain that happened, something, an experience was happening that my brain cannot assimilate. And I just rejected <laughs> it. I just said, it's not happening. Um, I, it was just too terrifying for me to, to kind of, you know, contend with in those moments. Um, and I since actually, I, you know, that's the sort of, that's the most, that's the worst part of the story. It's not the worst part, but it's the hardest part to admit. Um, that mm-hmm. I did go back in, and I. But when right. I did tell a friend of mine who's, who's a writer, my friend Ann Fadiman, um, she she introduced me to the um, an article about an essay written by a writer who got who got shot, who um, the same situation happened. He was being mugged, and he got a uh, you know older white male writer was sort of talking back to the mugger, and the guy shot him, and he, and he sort of saw the gun, but he told himself you know it wasn't happening. Um, Right. So, you know, that's what I'm here to tell you, that denial is real. um, And, yes, I was that person. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) Now, let's let's talk about, you know, people, humans, we're made up of different parts. We have our skin. We have our hair. We have insides, all types of things. And you delve into a lot of pieces of the black body. One of the pieces is hair, which is a big issue for black African-American women, women of African descent all across the globe. What do we do with our hair on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. Um, you adopted two children. Tell the audience about your, um, your, your mm-hmm. I guess, uh, adventures in hair with your children. Oh, my, <laughs> my hair journey. <laughs> um, yes, your hair journey. Yeah, so my, <laughs> and it's, it's such a unifying thing, isn't it? I mean, across 
the globe probably. It, it's the vocabulary of black experience, particularly black female experience. You know, um, you know, you come to a state like Vermont, the first thing we need to do, the kind of informal um, welcome crew, is to help pe- people find out, okay, here's where you can get your locks done. Here's, here's people who can braid fast and people who can braid well. You know? Oh my gosh! Um, yes, right. <laughs> and we have we have that community, and it's like we're t- you, it could, we could. It's like talking to people around who's about drug dealers. Like who's got the good stuff? Okay, she's braiding now, <laughs> but she only braids on Saturdays, and you have to be. You know? Okay, great. Let me go and get. I mean, it really has how we function. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, it's really, it, but it's true anywhere and everywhere. You know, the it's. I mean, thankfully now we have people like Tracy Ellis Ross, who you know, pe- moguls who, you know are caring about what's happening with our hair, but we've always had to create our own remedy, you know, our own kind of concoctions, you know, all of us um, black women. And for my daughters, yes. Uh, You know, I grew up uh, with a mother who um, didn't really, she was not a vain person. She, she had, she had long hair, long straight hair and all of the kind of social currency that went along with it, but she was a serious person and she was not interested in all of that beauty talk um, she kept her hair, you know, in a bun. Um, yeah. But it, I always wanted to play with her long Barbie hair, <laughs> but she never mm-hmm. did a thing about it, you know. And I, I twisted her arm and begged and pleaded for a relaxer when I was in high school, um, and she finally just threw up her hands. Okay, this kid has to learn the hard way, and I did that. And now I've got daughters, you know, who are contending with their hair, and you know, living. Not only are they are they black girls, um, they're living in a white place. And dealing with all of the conflicts around beauty, and mm-hmm. I work every day. I consider it, you know, serious work as a mother of a black mother of black children to make sure my daughters feel beautiful every day. And they will accuse right. me of being vain, and I'll say maybe it's true you are, but it's also something I. It's important, you know. They're not getting the enforcement. Um, my daughter the other day, you know, they're they're growing up here inside of this box, and they're still young. Ladies, you know, and my daughter's looking and she's like, why, you know, why isn't it, if I'm so beautiful, why isn't anyone after me, you know? And so we're talking about this, wow. you know, what it means that's a, to, that's right? That's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, you are yes. beautiful. And yes, and you're surrounded by, you know, these, you know, people who don't, who were not taught to see your beauty, you know, and you're living in a mm-hmm. world where your kind of beauty doesn't have the currency of, I don't know, you know, pick random white media star, you know? So yeah. now that's my job, right? To see them through this. Um, because it's going to be a long road, as we both know. Can you hear me so? Yes, yes, I can. Oh, okay, sorry. I don't know what happened. I don't know what's going on. I think it's like technology uh, situation, oh, yeah. but... Um, I'm sorry, I had it went mute for me for a second. Let's talk about this oh. fetishizing of uh, black bodies. When I when first of all, when I see black bodies and, and fetish, I think about Sarah Barton, uh, mm. uh, the Venus Hot and Top. That's automatically who I thought about. And um, absolutely. But now you and your body, I mean, you and your book, and uh, talk about um, your grandmother's experience, uh, almost a, a really horrible experience. Talk about what happened to your grandmother. She had to run into the field. Why did she have to run into the field? Mm. Yes, it's, it's a really haunting story that I grew up with as a child, you know. And I always am fascinated, just as an aside, but the kind of stories that shape us. 
some of the stories that shape us that we know from our ancestors, we weren't there, you know. They happened long before we were even imagined, but they shape us in so many ways. My, this is one of them. My grandmother was a young woman in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, and she would walk to back and forth uh, from a factory every day where she was um, in a bottle factory. And one day she was walking with some girlfriends home from the faculty, from the factory, and a pickup truck full of white boys um, stopped and was, you know, she felt, she knew what they were after. And she had the foresight to say to her, uh, I think a sister and girlfriend, okay, let's split up and run in the field, you know, if this car comes back. And they did. And they escaped harm. Um, Of course, their story brings to mind immediately so many stories that we know of and may never know of of, of women who did not escape harm from these kinds of moments. Um, And it's a story, of course, that's passed down that was told to me to about the dangers of the world, right, for women and for black women, you know, in a world where black female bodies are not treated with dignity, even now, and certainly not my grandmother's time when she's telling me the story in the 1930s when this happened to her. And, you know, we live with these stories. And the question is, how much should they shape the way we live in the world now? And how much should these stories impact my daughters? You know, for me, uh, it was a story told to me to say, watch out for white men. Watch out for the dangers posed exclusively by white men in a culture where black women's bodies have been used, degraded, etc. But my daughters are growing up in Vermont with parents who are professors and, you know, with a, in a different kind of social economy um, and a different political little bubble. So what use does that story have for them? You know, it was, it was, it was told to me to warn me. And it was told to me that in some ways to stop me, right, and to kind of remind me how vulnerable I am in the world. Um, and it was an important lesson, and I'm glad for the story. But we don't we want our daughters to be free. We want them to be free. We want them to be safe. We want our children to believe in the world. We, want them, we don't want them to wander into a situation that is going to bring them harm. That, I think, is a dilemma that is true for, for specifically black parents of black children and in kind of discrete and important ways for black mothers of black daughters, you know, who are facing the intersection of uh, racism and sexualized violence. How do we teach our children, well, very our daughters? Too. Very interesting. For your daughters, they have a white father, exactly. and he was very intimate with them, as a father should be, not in, a, not in a sexual or anything. I mean, intimate, emotionally, caring for them, holding their hands. You know, he. I remember in the book you talked about he went to the hair salon, sat with your daughter while she was getting her hair done, <laughs> and he talked about uh, the Geneva Convention. Um, <laughs> she was getting cornrows and Black women know about getting cornrows, either getting them or giving them, and it's just crazy. Like, I remember giving cornrows and combing my daughter's hair out, and I remember I getting detangler. The, the detangler had water base. It was not going to do jack for my daughter's hair. So finally I realized mm-hmm. I had to get a leave-in, you know, moisture-rich conditioner leave-in, and then I was able to comb through. But either way, there was still pain. And um, the issue of hair is like my daughter, her, her, she's, uh, her father's African, and she always reminds me, Mom, your hair's not like mine. You don't understand. And I'm like, okay, but it's hair and blah, 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 and I, I did your hair for a, up, all your life up until such and such point. But um, in terms of black bodies and, and being with people of other races, for me, 
I grew up in such a multicultural environment. For me, it was okay for my daughter to go be involved with somebody else. I didn't have a problem if she came in with an Asian guy or whatever. I was like, as long as he's tall, I just don't need short children, okay? <laughs> I don't want short grandchildren. <laughs> um, she, she thinks that's, that's crazy. crazy. But, you know, for your children, you know, like you said, they're in this Vermont environment, and also they have a white father who's loving and caring, so they may go out in the world. And, like, I don't know, I hate to, you know, be, like, they see somebody they really like and care about, and then that person doesn't like them. And actually in the story, oh, right, tell the story about the little boy who liked your daughter and was playing with her hair. Mm, that's right, um, yes, the, the little book. boy who, yeah, this is, I think, mm-hmm. a kindergarten story. Or written, she's really small, and there's a little boy who has a terrible crush on her, so obvious to me and his mother. Um, and, you know, Isabella then and even now is not really preoccupied with boys um, very much. I mean, it's changing as she gets older, but back then uh, she was not a boy crazy little girl, as we say. And so she liked him. And but then when it came to time for Valentine's Day, he told her he would only give cards that year to the, to the light kids, to the light, I think he said the light children. And, you know, my daughter told me at bedtime and I was crushed and I had to watch my own feelings that I not impose my own history on that moment, you know, because you never know, like, is she going to carry this or not? I certainly don't want to be the reason why she carries it by overreacting. <laughs> um, right. Right. And I, to- you know what I'm saying? You know, so I, I told her teacher and I just was sort of watching and I think there's a certain part of me that just, you know, um, I'm lucky to have older black women as, as dear friends here in Vermont. So they, they often warn me as we go through different steps. You know, and my friend Beverly, or Estelle in the book, Beverly, she, said, she told me, she says, you know, when they were small, she goes, everything's great now. And when they start pairing up, you watch out, you know, when, when your girls are left out. So, you know, of course, when that happens, it's going to be its own thing to deal with. But I've certainly been imagining it trying to prepare them, thinking about it, um, and also trying to leave, leave open for anything to happen, you know. Um, but I think that it is, it is you know, it's, it's the truth. And, and I went through it, you know, um, and it's happening all over, you know. And there are a lot of reasons why, of course, people don't get what they want in romance, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, there are a lot of, lot of reasons why. And I, of course, as I must say, part of me is secretly happy that I just want them not to get caught up with boys right now. That's me though. That's not, you know, but I think, um, you know, it's an ongoing thing. As you say, they have a dad who adores them. Um, and, you know, I think about, um, I don't want my daughters to be, to be lonely and none of us want our children to be lonely, you know, in romance yeah. or friendship or anything. So it is just like the COVID, you know, taking it day by day and, I want them, and I told my daughter recently, like, I only want you to be involved with people who respect you, you know, like you. Right. I, I, don't, I, right. I don't care what body that person comes in, you know, mm-hmm. but I want you mm-hmm. only to be prepared. I don't, and I don't want a phenomenon, you know, that we have, know about, read about, being that girl under the cover of darkness, you know, who, um, yes. that I don't want, right? Nobody that I think see. is kind of yeah, super dangerous, exactly. Home. Can't bring them mm-hmm. home, but mm-hmm. fine for a little, you know, that, that's, that's, no, I'm very vigilant when, around that, you know, for my beautiful brown girls. But, um, but yeah, you know, I think it's tough that I've, with so many black parents of black children, you know, watching them worry and worry and worry and worry, you know, and then 
it can work out. Um, but it is. Well, they're going to grow up. They're, they're, they're going to grow yep. up. They're going to become adults, mm-hmm. and they're going to use mm-hmm. what you've taught them and also what they see in the world to, to maneuver. You know, like my daughter, she's grown, and like I, I said, she lives in Boston. And, you know, it's a little scary for me that my grown, my, my baby, as I, I still, she's still my baby, is out in this space. And she's in a white space. You know, Boston was a very, is a very white space, and um, she was not used to that. It was, it was a difficult transition. So she's maneuvering with that issue of being in this majority white space um, and people wanting to touch her hair and her skin and all these things. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about moving in spaces. That's something else you talk about in your book. And um, when I think about moving in spaces, you know, I can go back to slavery. You know, blacks were not allowed to travel. They couldn't go off the plantation. Only reason you're going off the plantation is because I probably lent you out to another family. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. we have, um, you know, moving in spaces, traveling, and you bring up the Green Book. Um, I had a, a gentleman on. He did a children's version of the Green Book, and I had him talk about that. Tell the audience what the Green Book is and, and your experience with your family and John mm. and the car. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, the, the Green Book, um, you know, in circulation, I think, until – the 70s, really, um, a green book was literally a book uh, that was printed and, and assembled um, for and by black people who were traveling to the segregated South. You know, it contained a list of restaurants, places where you could stay, um, you know, families that were willing to take you in overnight, restaurants that would serve black people to, to, to protect black lives, um, not only from physical harm, but from, you know, emotional damage of being turned away, of being, you know, the, the, the object of assault, um, it, it protected you. And it was sort of that informal uh, underground railroad of just, you know, black people traveling through the South. And it existed, you know, as, a, as an important, you know, an important almanac for black people until, until very recently. And still informally, I think it's still... You know, you knew you know the places you can go where you're not going to be insulted. You know, and so it was my father right. growing up. You know, he grew up in, in Trinidad. Uh, my mother grew up in, in the segregated South in Mississippi, but they were living together in, you know, a married couple in Nashville, Tennessee, and you just knew. And my father knew when we traveled from Nashville to visit my mother's family in Mississippi, we followed the same route every time for decades. Um, and we would stop at the same gas station and the same restaurants where we knew we could be served, you know, because even if you mm. could be served, right, it didn't mean you'd also be served pleasantly. It didn't mean something, a place you'd necessarily want to support. So um, just the way now I think we check and see, you know, what, what is this company, what are their politics like, you knew you weren't going to stop at this restaurant and give them your money because they, they, they treated black employees poorly, whatever. You know, you knew these things. Right. You had to know these things to live. And so my father, you, know, you carried that knowledge around with you. Um, so the essay that I think you're talking about, Interstate, uh, is in my husband who's Italian-American, grew up in Berkshire, and is very smart about race and has made it his personal business um, to, to, you know, acquaint himself with African-American history as because he's an interesting person who cares about the world. And he also, his personal passions, his intellectual passions, have to do with you know, African-American music and culture so he knew this already. Uh, I'm saying he, what I'm saying is he wasn't ignorant. You know, when he got in the car with my father, and we we're making the trip to Nash to, from Nashville to 
Mississippi together for him to meet my mother's family. But the car was, the tires were losing air. And my father, brilliant physician, pillar of his community, terrible driver. Um, <laughs> he, you know, I inherited from him. Not a man who had natural affinity with cars. Not, uh, unlike my husband, who grew up, you know, um, understanding cars a little bit better. And so he told my father we have to pull over. My father did not want to pull over because he was afraid. And because he's a black man who was in the South, and he understood mm-hmm. that it was important to be afraid. You can't just pull. You can't, you know, we can't do those things freely, right? Would that we could. But we can't just pull over and expect, you know, to change a tire without consequence. We should be able to, but it is not our yeah. history that we, the world belongs to. And my father knew that, and my husband knew that, but he also understood that the tire needed to be changed. We were in trouble if we didn't. And so he changed the tire. Um, it's also something he could do. My husband, my, my father could not do it. My father was not someone who, a, a joke about him, um, was I heard at his wake, someone said, you know, Dr. Bernard, um, he, he's not going to change the light bulb. He can, he'll hold the ladder for you while you change it. <laughs> so my father was not someone... You know, manual labor oh was part of history, but it was, it was part of my husband's history. And I always say that, you know, in my marriage, people always, even recently someone said something where they revealed, they assumed that the biggest conflict between my husband and, and, and myself must be over race. But my husband grew up very proud yes, of working class. you talk class. about that. I thought that you know? was so hilarious. I was, I was just yes, like, it is. what the heck? Well, you were talking to her about something else. It had nothing to do with, like, him being white. It was just... We're yes. having a situation right now. You know what I mean? I know. I think I just I feel like in some ways to live in an interracial marriage, you have to have a sense of humor. I mean, even the people that you, you love could say dumb things. And I was in a yes, I was in a conversation not long ago um, where someone revealed that. I thought, wow. I said, you know, my husband, you know, he grew up very modest, working class, immigrant. You know, I'm the entitled one. You know. I'm the one who's right. a doctor's daughter who expects things to go my way. Um, and if anything, you know, it, it, we, you know, I remember when the kids were little and one of my kids was, uh, one of my daughters was, was not well. And John said, you know, you're always going to the doctor. You know, it's just anything. But for, cause for him, to go, his family, his mother, you know, his parents had, didn't even, they didn't graduate from high school. You know, they were working very young in their families. So, okay. you know, for, the, for them to, go to a doctor um, was a big deal. Had to be serious. But my father was a physician. Yeah. Right. But my father was a physician and all of his, you know, his whole social world was full of, so it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal to me. I wasn't intimidated by going to the doctor. But, you know, um, it, 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 what, these, these are the moments that have brought us in some ways the most interesting conflicts in our married, married life. You know, it's just that um, realizing that my husband, he went to Harvard, and, and the, the people he met at Harvard were, there were a whole cast of, you know, these, these upper-class black people. He'd never met upper-class people, you know, except the people he worked mm. for in, the, in Linux, you know, it's a resort community. So he was a waiter. He, was, he knew rich people like that. And suddenly he was meeting black people at Harvard whose grandparents were, you know, nude Dr. Du Bois. And, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so that was right, his entrance right. into, like, you know, and so we always remark on that. Um, and, well, you know, I, I, so, you know, yeah. Your grandmother, your grandmother and grandfather, your grandmother was on one side of the tracks and your grandfather was on the other side of the tracks. And, you know, True. that was uh, interracial, you know. Um, just real yes. quick, I know we get, we got close to the time, but I wanted to talk about religion. 
And you may think, people might think, hmm, black is the body of religion. But the way the body moves in a church, depending on the church, you know, talk about your experience when you went to church with your grandmother. Oh, my experience, yes. Well, my grandmother grew up, uh, my grandmother um, attended a, you know, a Baptist church in Mississippi, and it's, you know, kind of a, a small church that was, a, you know, the lifeblood of the community, really, and, you know, but, but you know, you're, you're a kid growing up there, and you're in church for four hours a day. My mother used to complain about it all the time, but my dad grew up, you know, from this black south. We grew up in a, a, a religious world, um, and I've always been drawn to my grandmother's church. I think um, my mother kind of escaped that world when she escaped the uh, I, the Deep South and came to Nashville and we started to attend an Anglican church. My father was from Trinidad, so that's, the, there's, you know, you did that, right? And that day you adopted your husband's identity in some ways. So that's what she shifted to, but she always missed the rhythms. You know, she grew up reading the Bible and she, I think it fueled a lot of her own, um, she was a poet and her, the, the poetry she wrote um, was informed by, you know, the images she grew up hearing in Sundays in, in her church. So when mm-hmm. I went down to Mississippi one summer and stayed with my grandmother, I was so moved by the spectacle, the theater, you know, of the black church. It's enchanting, you know, it's thrilling. Um, and, you know, watching it unfold, and here I'd grown up in this very formal Episcopal church, you know, where we recited mass and Latin, you know, and, um, to hear the spontaneity and I fell for it. You know, I thought, wow, look at this incredible life. But what I didn't understand was that this was rehearsed. This was well thought out. Not, I don't mean to sound cynical, but, you know, you're looking at something like that and you think, oh, this is just happening spontaneously. But in fact, right. it's happening because, it's, you know, this unit has functioned like this and, and people, this is a, like any work of art. You know, it takes coordination, it takes agreement, and it takes, yes, over time, knowing how to bring the people and the music and the, the message together to make this thing. You know, it's not just, it's work, it's labor. And I always think of that um, in my own writing life because you want the writing, you know, you should come off the page to the reader as spontaneous. You know, it should come off the page as the reader needs to be invited into an intimate and real experience. But in order to make that real experience, it's a lot of preparation. And a lot, and just work. In order to make magic, takes work. That's what I learned that day. You know, as a as, you know, looking work. at my great, yes, it takes one. work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So that is wonderful. Um, the story because my, I was raised as a Buddhist, and my grandparents were Baptists, and they were in the church. But um, my most of my life, I was I was Buddhist up until I'm like eighteen, nineteen. Wow. And so I have a whole different experience as well when I would go into a black church as opposed to going to, I've been to the black church and I've been to the quote unquote white church. And there, there are differences in the way people move and act and stand and interact. Um, and I think for black Americans, the church is such a big place where they could be free and they were safe. And I think mm. that for me is, is, is one of the takeaways. And um, I feel bad sometimes people have conversations. Oh, you know, that sermon, such and such and such. And, da, 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 and I'm sitting there in the circle like, you know that song? No, I don't know that song. Why don't you know that mm-hmm. song? I wasn't in the church. And then, like, I feel like this anomaly, you know? I feel like this anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and, and I saw that in part of your book, you wrote about you're the different kind of black person, you know? Um, you were having yeah, a conversation yeah. with, I think, with an interviewer, 
and she looked you up and down type of thing and was like, mm, yeah, you, you, you mixed, you married to a white guy, woman, a man, mm-hmm. blah, 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 you know, and I felt for you. I really did because I've been there. And, um, <laughs> I love that. I, I have, you know, it, I'm, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I'm light-skinned. Um, my hair is not straight, but you know, it's, it's it, you know, it's, when it's blown out, it's like, oh, you know, you got the good hair, and um, mm-hmm. but you know, there's there's a, a burden with that as well. You know, people may not mm-hmm. realize. You know, sometimes I wish I was darker, you know, mm-hmm. just so that mm-hmm. I can blend in to the circumstances. You know, um, yeah. sometimes I wish I knew how to double dutch so that nobody would tease me. You know, all these things. You know. Um, mm-hmm. But I really appreciate you writing this book, Black is the Body. I have five copies to give away. If you're listening, you guys follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Check me out Saturday mornings with Joy Keys on Facebook. And also check me out on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Dr. Bernard, thank you very much. And I look forward to your future essays and future books. I hope that you can come back on the show again. I would love that, Joy. Thank you so much. It's so fun to talk to you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Good luck with the COVID situation. Okay, you too. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Again, thank you, everybody, for listening. Stay tuned. Check out thank the you. social media so you can win a copy of the book and um, see how you can win. You're probably going to have to email me an answer to a certain situation. Um, but you got to be the first one to do it. All right. I'll see you next week. Um, actually, I have a special show coming Wednesday, May 20th. Um, it's an actor from HBO's Insecure, and he plays um, Issa Rae's brother. So check out Saturday, uh, Wednesday, May 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Um, you can call in then and um, chat with him. All right. I will talk to you later. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Every year, millions of Americans are exposed to a contagious virus. What is this virus? It's stigma. Stigma promotes an environment of shame, fear, and silence, which prevents millions of people from seeking help. But there's good news. The National Alliance on Mental Illness believes stigma towards mental illness is 100% curable. So do yourself and everyone a favor. Go to CureStigma.org and get tested for stigma.